Hey, We the People listeners, this is Nikandra Yanachi, your producer. Become a member of the National Constitution Center at the $125 level or higher by July 31st, and you will receive a signed copy of Jeff Rosen's new book, Louis D. Brandeis, American Prophet. Make your gift by emailing membership at constitutioncenter.org and let Jeff know how you would like him to sign your book. Again, that's membership at constitutioncenter.org. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And on today's show, we dive into one of the more fascinating constitutional questions of our day, the dispute between the online news site Gawker and Terry Bolia known more famously as the professional wrestler, Hulk Hogan. In 2012, Gawker published a two-minute excerpt of a sex tape involving Hulk Hogan and the wife of a friend. In response, Hogan brought lawsuits in federal and Florida state courts, uh, claiming an invasion of privacy and an infliction of emotional distress, among other claims. The case eventually went to trial, where Hogan was ultimately awarded $140 million in damages. In recent weeks, the story has uh, been uh, enmeshed with two developments. In May, PayPal co-founder and early Facebook investor Peter Thiel revealed his financial support for Hogan's fight against Gawker. And just last week, Gawker announced that it's filing for bankruptcy and going up for sale. Joining me now to discuss Gawker, Hulk Hogan, and the clash between privacy and the First Amendment are two leading experts on press freedom and privacy. Jane Kirtley is the Scylla Professor of Media Ethics and Law at the University of Minnesota School of Journalism and Mass Communication, where she's also the director of the Scylla Center for the Study of Media Ethics and Law. And Amy Gaida is Professor of Law at Tulane University Law School. She is the author of The First Amendment Bubble, which she discussed in a great program at the National Constitution Center last spring. You can watch that program on our website, constitutioncenter.org, or on our companion podcast, Live at America's Town Hall. Jane, Amy, thank you so much for being here. Sure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, Amy, let me start with you. And uh, like Professor Kingsfield, let me ask you to tell us the facts of the Hogan case. What's the central constitutional claim? And what uh, what did the jury find? Sure. I'm, I'm trembling being back in a law school class, <laughs> but I'll, I'll do my best here. You come uh, here with a skull full of mush, and you leave <laughs> thinking like a lawyer. That's right. <laughs> Uh, so, so what happened, as you said, is that uh, Gawker received uh, a sex tape featuring uh, professional wrestler Hulk Hogan, published that sex tape, uh, and Hulk Hogan then uh, filed a request asking Gawker to take it down. Gawker refused, uh, and then Hulk Hogan uh, filed a motion for an injunction uh, in state court, I believe, uh, that was then transferred to federal court, uh, and uh, the federal court decided that the injunction uh, should not be granted. Uh, at that, at some point later, uh, the federal court decided it didn't have jurisdiction, and so shifted back to uh, the state court. That's where uh, Hulk Hogan then refiled, uh, bringing uh, his claim again for an injunction. Uh, that injunction was granted by the trial court. It went up on appeal. That uh, decision um, was uh, overturned by the appellate court. 
uh, and the court decided there that uh, Gawker's uh, right to decide what is newsworthy and what isn't trumped Hulk Hogan's right to privacy. So it went back to trial on the underlying issues, uh, which were, as you said, uh, publication of private facts, invasion of privacy, and intentional infliction of emotional distress. There, the jury granted or the jury decided the case in favor of uh, Hulk Hogan, uh, and that's where we stand. And I think what you said um, um, uh, capsulizes it nicely, which is it's a clash between freedom of the press, the, the ability to decide what is newsworthy as a journalist, uh, and an individual's right to privacy, the privacy to keep this very intimate moment uh, out of um, the public gaze, we might say. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Jane, uh, I want to ask if you have anything to add to Amy's uh, statement of the facts and then uh, jump into this clash between uh, privacy and freedom of the press, um, which began with Louis Brandeis. As, As listeners know, I'm a Brandeis evangelist and Brandeis wrote the most famous article on the right to privacy ever in 1890. I'll, we'll talk about that in just a bit, but but Jane, I want you to set us up by uh, telling us if you want to add anything to the facts and also how you would describe the clash between the privacy and First Amendment interests in a case. Thank you. Thanks. I, I, I think I would not have much to add to Amy's masterful uh, presentation of the case other than to make the note that Hulk Hogan had actually on his own, made determinations that he was going to talk about this sex tape after it was um, posted by Gawker. Um, He discussed it on a couple of different media outlets. And I think that that is a not insignificant point here. There are also now coming out post-trial some factual disputes that have not yet been resolved, to my knowledge, about whether Hulk Hogan actually had knowledge of the presence of the cameras recording the sexual activity or not. I raise that only to say that uh, in this clash between freedom of the press and privacy, one of the questions I think we have to ask ourselves is whether the subject has a legitimate expectation of privacy. Some types of uh, details about our personal lives are so offensive to any reasonable person that it's fair to say that for anybody, those would be uh, inappropriate invasions of their personal privacy sphere. But... It's really not that doctrinaire because it is very much driven not only by the facts but by the people involved. And to equate somebody like Hulk Hogan with some of the other celebrities or certainly some of the individuals that have been involved in, for example, revenge porn cases, to suggest that their situations are identical to Hogan's or vice versa, it seems to me to be the the wrong way to approach the question. Um, uh, He has made choices along the way about uh, his personal life and the persona that he chooses to present that I would suggest make this calculation a little less self-evident than it might be if we were just talking about, let's say, a 16-year-old who was utterly obscure, who found uh, a a tape of herself or himself having sex suddenly being posted on a website. The whole idea of trying to balance privacy and the First Amendment, I I have thought for many, many years, is a very problematic one. Um, Because ultimately, what at least the form of invasion of privacy that we're talking about, that is publication of private facts, what that involves is suing somebody for telling the truth. 
It's not like libel, where you're suing somebody for lying about you and reporting something that is not only false but harmful to your reputation. In this case, you're trying to sue because you're saying you told the truth and it was very distressing, hurtful, offensive to me. I understand that, and I think, as you were suggesting, the Warren Brandeis article certainly was looking at that question about don't people have some kind of reasonable expectation that some information about themselves can be kept um, wholly personal and secure. But when we're talking about public figures like Hulk Hogan, it seems to me that at that point you have to really try to balance in a more proactive way the desire, legitimate or not, of the subject to control information and the right of the public to know about it. And I know some people think that this case is sui generis, it stands on its own, it has no probative nature for any future cases, but it seems to me that as we're looking at an era where people like Donald Trump are trying to control press coverage about them, you can't just out of hand say that a case like Hulk Hogan would have no uh, impact on how future juries might evaluate a case like this. And I don't mean because it would be binding precedent. I'm talking about the way the case would be presented to the jury and what they think they could do in terms of deciding for themselves whether something is, is a piece of information that the public needs, or to put it another way, to allow the subject to decide whether it's something that the public needs to know. Great. Well, the debate is well and truly joined. And Jane, you put two important questions on the table. One, does Hulk Hogan himself have a legitimate expectation of privacy, as you put it, or is the information in the public interest? And more broadly, is there a clash between this very notion of suing for invasion of privacy defined as the publication of truthful but embarrassing facts and the First Amendment? Back to Brandeis, I do have to quote from that uh, totemic article from 1890 because it's so great to quote from Brandeis. Here's Brandeis in 1890. The press is overstepping in every direction the obvious bounds of propriety and of decency. Gossip is no longer the resource of the idle and the vicious, but has become a trade which is pursued with industry as well as effrontery. Uh, so Brandeis is lamenting this new technology, the instant camera and the Kodak, uh, the, the, the Kodak camera and the instant press, which guaranteed that what used to be whispered from the closets is now shouted from the rooftops. And he, pro he proposes this new uh, cause of action called the Brandeis torts, which sound like a delicious dessert, but are um, actually the questions at issue in this case, which are essentially uh, causes of action that allow people to sue for invasions of their dignity. And Brandeis recognized that the right to privacy does not prohibit the publication of a matter which is of public or general interest. So one of the central questions in this case, as both of you have said, is whether or not the Hulk Hogan case was in the public or general interest. And then more broadly, whether we really think that judges should be in the business of deciding what's in the public or general interest or whether that clashes with the First Amendment. So with all of that on the table, um, Amy, why don't I... Um, why don't you first address this broader question? Jane suggested that there is a clash between the very ideas of invasion of privacy suits or the Brandeis torts for public figures and the First Amendment. Uh, what is your response to that? And, and in particular, in the age of the Internet, do you think that the clash is uh, especially acute or not? Sure. And I do think that the clash is especially acute. Uh, I, I think it's important for um, your listeners to know that uh, the restatement of torts, which is sort of like a dictionary and encyclopedia that judges turn to routinely, uh, especially in privacy cases, does suggest that there are some things, some truthful things that are, uh, are not newsworthy. Uh, and 
among those truthful things not newsworthy, the restatement literally says that an actress's sex life is something that she has the right to keep private, so out of uh, suggesting um, out of the press. And that was back in 1977. So the restatement authors there um, suggest that uh, even though someone is, in fact, a celebrity, uh, that perhaps those areas, those intimacies should be carved out uh, and that media should not then uh, be able to report uh, these sorts of, um, of uh, you know, very uh, embarrassing details uh, and here literally uh, a sex tape featuring um, uh, a celebrity. So, so I, I disagree with Jane, I guess, to an extent, um, suggesting that I, I completely agree that if a sex tape is, um, uh, that if people find out that a sex tape exists, it's certainly news, let's say, uh, that uh, the sex tape exists. But there's a line to be drawn, I think, in privacy terms between reporting that a sex tape exists and actually uh, publishing um, graphic portions of that sex tape. Um, what I like to suggest is that uh, if I were making the call back in the days when I was a journalist, uh, I, I think I would either not use any image whatsoever uh, from the tape, uh, or if my editor suggested that an image was appropriate, uh, maybe use an image that didn't feature nudity uh, with um, uh, some sort of box uh, over uh, over particularly um, embarrassing uh, details to prove, in fact, that the, the tape existed. And I, I think that that's, I think it is dangerous. I completely agree with Jane that it's dangerous that uh, we have courts stepping in to make these calls. Uh, and I've actually suggested that, uh, that in fact, uh, courts should not make the call um, in most cases, that truthful information should, in fact, be presumed newsworthy, uh, except in unique situations involving uh, real exploitation of human dignity, like graphic sex, graphic nudity, uh, those, sorts of, um, those sorts of details. So the bottom line is, yes, I think it's a clash. I think that the clash has been made uh, all the more clear, um, not only because, well, I guess because of technology uh, and also um, because of push-the-envelope um, websites that do, in fact, publish this sort of material. Great. Um, Jane, what do you think of Amy's proposed line? She says there is a clash between free speech and dignity, but the one thing that shouldn't be allowed under a dignitary tort is the actual publication of sex tapes. That kind of tracks what courts found in 1997 examining the Pamela Anderson Lee uh, case. They unwisely taped their honeymoon uh, intimacies and shared the tape with a friend who, who shared it with the networks. Um, Penthouse magazine won a suit by Anderson Lee uh, for publishing sexually explicit photos. A federal court in California said the couple voluntarily disclosed the intimate information, but a different federal judge said that you couldn't publish the sex tape itself. Uh, so um, does that line make sense, that basically you can publish almost anything except for a sex tape itself? Well, I, I appreciated the distinction or the compromise that Amy was describing, because I think one of the central problems with saying you can report on the existence of it, the fact of it, you can describe it, but you can't reproduce it, is exactly the issue that's implied here, which is, well, if you can't do any of those things, then how can you be sure it actually exists? You know, it's the, it's the line out of the old Marx Brothers movie, who are you going to believe? 
me or your lying eyes. <laughs> if if we can't see it in this era, we tend to think that it's not really there. And more to the point, the subject, the person, can deny its existence. And I and you know this came up. You may remember a few years ago with the uh, tape that was supposedly uh, shot of the um, former mayor, now deceased, of Toronto, Ron Ford, and the issue of whether he was um, using illicit drugs. And a huge hue and cry about whether um, it had been obtained at all, whether it was a uh, bogus hoax tape, so forth. And I think that's the problem, again, going beyond the wonderful world of Hulk Hogan and his sex tapes, of um, drifting into this realm that suggests that some images um, are so intimate and so personal and maybe so disgusting that the public shouldn't be subjected to them. I absolutely agree that the kind of editorial judgments that Amy is talking about is something that every news editor should do. And it could well be that you would decide for reasons of taste that this is not something that you want to uh, publicize. And I would defend the right to make that decision. But that's very different from saying we're not going to publish it because we think we'll get sued for it and hit with a million-dollar judgment if we do. That's the chilling effect that I see here. And although it's, it's easy to say that a sex tape would probably always never you know, have any kind of uh, – public information value, I think for better or for worse, the American public does tend to evaluate not just politicians, but celebrities and others, at least in part on their perception of how they're dealing with their personal lives, their personal morality. I don't necessarily think that that's a valid reason to, for example, cast a vote or not cast a vote, but that is the world in which we're living today. So, I, again, my concern here is really not with the Hulk Hogan case as such, although I would reiterate that in my view, he opened the door to this by choosing to talk about the tape himself in other venues, that that was essentially his concession that this was something that was newsworthy that he wanted to talk about. It's just that he wants to control the discourse about it, and that's the frightening part about uh, using privacy in that way, at least to me. Amy, respond to Jane's good uh, counter-argument. Even if we're inclined to draw the line and say sex tapes but nothing else, here Jane suggests uh, Hulk Hogan made his sex life a subject of public debate. He revealed a lot about it uh, on the Internet. And more broadly, the Brandeis torts required that the information at issue be highly offensive to a reasonable person and in an age of webcams and let it literally all hang out on the Internet, might it be argued that even a sex tape uh, is not uh, highly offensive, but instead is newsworthy? And for that reason, might the Supreme Court possibly strike down the privacy towards that issue in this case? Sure. Uh, so, so I think that it's relevant here, and I'm not going to be able to remember the precise percentage, but there was a, a survey done shortly after the jury decision in the Hulk Hogan case and close to 90% of the people answering this survey uh, believed that uh, Gawker made the wrong decision, that, in fact, it did not believe that the sex tape was newsworthy in that sense. So believed that, in fact, Hulk Hogan's privacy should trump any news value that may exist um, in the sex tape. And so there I think that, that the line is pretty clear uh, to suggest that even celebrities might have some sort of 
uh, privacy in this very intimate moment uh, and and supported by uh, it seems a large percentage uh, of um, of the public and I'm also not saying that it would never be uh, that that uh, a sex tape could never be newsworthy because I think in fact there may be situations where sex tapes would be newsworthy uh, uh, and uh, and yet uh, here I think um, even though he brought this information up um, a lot of celebrities use their sexuality uh, in order to gain celebrity uh, a number of celebrities actually openly discuss their sex lives uh, and if that's the case, it seems to me to then uh, open the door um, uh, under that argument to to any sort of graphic uh, information um, being published uh, about uh, about anyone. Um, Jane, give us a sense of the state of the Brandeis torts. There was a law review article published a couple of years ago with a memorable title, at least for a law review, the Brandeis torts are alive and well and living in France. And the argument there was that in Europe, you can sue people for violations of dignity. Indeed, the European court has recognized a sweeping new right to be forgotten on the internet, which is based in Brandeisian notions of honor and dignity. Uh, but in the U.S., uh, juries, according to the article, had gotten out of the business of trying to decide what was in the public interest and what was newsworthy uh, because of the First Amendment difficulties and because no one agreed in an age of exhibitionism exactly what was highly offensive to a reasonable person. So my question is, what, aside from the publication of sex tapes, are other privacy torts succeeding, and, and how are they faring in America these days? Well, let me respond by saying this, that I just got back from spending the last four and a half months in Europe. I was actually on a Fulbright in Riga, Latvia, and I was teaching a course in U.S. media law, and my European students uh, were very much of the opinion that the United States is all wrong on privacy, that um, there should be uh, much greater protection for personal information than currently exists under our law. Um, and they said, you know, we, we love the First Amendment and we love the freedom of the press, but you go too far, uh, people in the United States, in elevating freedom of the press above the individual's right to dignity. And, of course, that word of dignity is a, is a dangerous one and also one that I think it's I, – I would say it's fair to say the Supreme Court of the United States has really rejected the idea of a right to dignity, at least for public figures. Uh, way back in the case brought by Jerry Falwell against Hustler magazine, um, he sued for infliction of emotional distress for – um, an editorial uh, cartoon, basically a, a takeoff on an ad for Campari liqueur that depicted him as having had his first sexual encounter with his mother in an outhouse when they were both drunk after they kicked out the goat. Um, obviously not meant to be taken literally, but very offensive to Mr. Falwell, or at least so he said. And ultimately, the court said that when you're talking about public figures, they don't have the protection against emotional distress in those settings because of, of the ability they have to engage in public discourse and public denunciation of others with whom they disagree. The reason I mention all this is, is just to say that when the idea of, for example, insult laws flourish in other countries, although they, they are being reduced in some places, that's really never been something that we in the United States embraced. The privacy tort is a little bit different. 
I think that you know there are four different kinds of privacy torts recognized to some degree or another in in most states, although a few states have only chosen one. Um, tell t- tell, tell that, the listeners what they are, just because it's okay. The first one is um, intrusion on seclusion, which would be in the whole Kogan case. It would be whoever placed the hidden camera and recorded uh, Hulk Hogan and his sex partner um, in their activities. That would be something that would fall under the realm of intrusion on seclusion, a place where someone, assuming they didn't know the cameras were there and hadn't consented to them, um, intruding on somebody's privacy, a place where they had a reasonable expectation of privacy. And your home is a place where traditionally you have a very high expectation of privacy. Uh, publication of private facts is the second one, and that's the one that's in play in the Hulk Hogan case. Um, and the need uh, for him to show highly offensive to a reasonable person and not newsworthy are the two linchpins to that. The third one is something called false light, which uh, former Chief Justice of the Indiana Supreme Court famously referred to as libel light, L-I-T-E, like Coke light. Um, it's like libel, but it's a little bit different in the sense that you sue over something that is false about you or creates a false impression about you, but is not necessarily defamatory. A number of states have rejected this tort as basically being an unnecessary one, but there are still a lot of states that have it. And the fourth one is um, variously called uh, misappropriation or appropriation of someone's name or image, generally limited to commercial use, such as an advertisement, but not exclusively. In fact, the only U.S. Supreme Court case that has considered it did not involve commercial use at all. It involved a a television station that filmed somebody's um, human cannonball act at a fair, aired the whole thing, which was only a few seconds in length, and was ultimately sued successfully for having appropriated that person's act and therefore um, limited his ability to profit from it. So it's a very very much almost like intellectual property sort of tort because it's based on the idea that your name and image have value and someone cannot take those away from you without providing you with compensation. Or it might be an unjust enrichment theory, for example. And I think it's fair to say that the commercial speech, uh, or I'm sorry, the, the misappropriation tort is one that courts are struggling with uh, these days, particularly in settings like uh, the depiction of athletes in uh, video games, fantasy football, that type of thing. How much can it look like them without intruding into uh, their ability, their right to control their name or image. Um, The intrusion on seclusion, and Amy may have a different take on this than I do, but my sense is that because many states have laws uh, dealing with hidden cameras, hidden microphones, and so forth, that for the most part, uh, this is is not a huge issue, at least not for the traditional news media, because they know, frankly, which states they can use hidden cameras in and which states they can't. Um, And so in that sense, I think intrusion on seclusion is probably less um, frequent than uh, the uh, publication of private facts toward at least these days. And as I said, my impression is that courts and juries are struggling with this eternal question of when is something a matter of legitimate public concern and when is it not? Because if it is a matter of legitimate public concern, then under the First Amendment, um, it has to be allowed to go forward regardless of how offended the the subject might be. Very very interesting. That was extremely helpful. And just to review class, uh, for uh, so we have the four torts. Um, 
intrusion on seclusion, publication of private facts, uh, misappropriation, and intentional infliction of emotional distress. Those are the four. And the one that we're focusing on here is the publication of private facts. Um, Amy, a lot to respond to, but uh, I'll just ask you this. You, you've, you've adopted this very moderate position that basically only sex tapes should be actionable under the publication of private facts and almost nothing else. Given the fact that this lawsuit, funded by a third party, appears to be on the verge of bankrupting Gawker, does that exacerbate your First Amendment concerns? And do you think that even the publication of a sex tape should not be actionable if it's going to bankrupt the publication? No, and I should also say that I, I do believe that there are other areas other than sex tapes that should be carved out. And in fact, I do like to focus on uh, human dignity in a very limited fashion. So, um, so arguing that we shouldn't define it the way it's defined uh, in Europe, uh, but that we should define it the way we've done so historically, legally in the United States. Uh, which is protection for certain things, including uh, nudity, uh, sex, um, very uh, personal uh, medical information, uh, and uh, those sorts of things. So, so my area of protection uh, would be greater than just um, just sex tapes, and look to uh, those particular um, uh, times in which media or someone else uh, reported truthful things uh, involving uh, human dignity in that very very limited sense. Uh, I I also wanted to suggest um, uh, that, that, in fact, these, uh, these torts are, are not dead uh, in the United States, that there have been uh, some cases, a, a handful of cases um, of late, uh, broadly speaking, uh, where courts have upheld the idea that people can sue for tr- publication of truthful information. So, uh, so people, uh, you know, in a similar situation uh, as um, Hulk Hogan uh, found himself, uh, and upheld their right to sue for invasion of privacy over media's suggestion uh, that they had the First Amendment right to publish uh, the material. Um, some of them were um, a picture of a, a baseball team, for example, children uh, in a, a baseball team where the coach had uh, sexually abused um, some of the players. Those children sued for invasion of privacy, and the court found that they had a valid claim, could um, go to a jury uh, on their publication of private facts claim. Same with a woman whose um, very emotional language over the body of her dead son in a hospital uh, was um, noted by uh, newspaper reporters and included in their story uh, the next day about drug and gang violence uh, in Chicago. She sued for publication of private facts, and the court found that, in fact, she had a valid claim, uh, enough, strong enough to go to the jury over the newspaper's argument that the First Amendment protected um, them. And then, uh, finally, um, uh, another example, uh, one from Washington, D.C., uh, perhaps, uh, to me, the most troubling, uh, where a court decided that a gossip column that featured um, uh, a suggestion that a woman who was a producer for CNN had dated uh, a number of high-profile men in Washington, D.C., uh, that um, she then sued uh, for publication of private facts, uh, and the court found that she had a valid claim because no woman uh, in her 30s would want other people knowing uh, who she had dated or had had sex with. So, so I don't think that this tort is dead uh, in the United States, and I think that the Hulk Hogan case um, uh, helps to, to show that, and as Jane um, suggests, has ramifications beyond uh, just this particular case. With regard to um, Gawker's bankruptcy, I'm 
I'm not troubled by that. I'm not troubled by the litigation financing because I believe that the law is, in fact, on Hulk Hogan's side and that, and that it is without, without the law on his side, this case would not have moved forward as it has thus far. We don't know what's going to happen on appeal, uh, but, but I believe that the law is on his side and without it, um, Gawker would not necessarily uh, be going bankrupt right now. Uh, thanks so much for that. Um, Jane, do you believe that the First Amendment concerns are exacerbated by the third-party funding and the possibility of Gawker's bankruptcy? And I do. I do, is my short answer. I'm, I'm very bothered by both aspects of it. Let me stipulate that um, it's not illegal for somebody to bankroll this uh, litigation. But I think it is very troubling that we did not have until ultimately the press dug it out transparency about who was really behind the money that was being spent on this case. Um, you know, yesterday uh, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit um, threw out part of Jesse Ventura's libel case, and one of the things that is relevant about this, as they consider whether they're going to go back for retrial or not, is that. Ventura is paying his lawyer as a plaintiff. He's not doing it on a contingent fee basis. So it's costing him money to litigate this case. And regardless of the merits, I just would point out that there's transparency there. We know who's paying for that litigation. We didn't know who was paying um, for the Hulk Hogan case. And that, to me, is, is bothersome, especially when we're talking about people that are in the media. I realize a lot of people regard the Gawker as Gawker as a, at best, you know, a poor relation to traditional news media sources. But there's a long history in this country of um, unconventional news media sources breaking very important stories. So the fact that we're talking about an organization that many people regard as little more than a pretty scurrilous gossip organ. Um, is something that I, I understand, but it doesn't seem to me that that should change the concern that people should have, number one, that it gets run out of business by uh, a, this kind of litigation. Uh, more illustrious organizations than Gawker have had that happen to them uh, quite a number of years ago. A newspaper in uh, Illinois, the Alton Telegraph, uh, went bankrupt in that case, in a libel case, for a story they never even published. Yes, it's rare. Yes, it's unusual. But again, having just come back from Eastern Europe, where I see how oligarchs uh, from Russia and other countries um, basically use litigation as a tool to silence their critics, I cannot say that I don't see, think that this is troubling. Uh, either that somebody outside, um, without being transparent about it, is funding litigation, or that the impact of a judgment of this nature would be to put an organization out of business. Um, to me, those are are very disturbing things. Amy, one more one more beat on that. Uh, conceding your uh, belief that the law was against Gawker here, uh, is it troubling if third parties fund litigation for the purpose of shutting down their critics, as Jane says? And how to square that with the Supreme Court's holding in New York Times and Sullivan that the First Amendment protects the publication of all statements, even false ones, about public officials, except when made with actual malice. The purpose of that was to prevent a lawsuit from really shutting down the New York Times and ensuring that public discourse be robust uh, and, and uninhibited and wide open. Sure, and I'm, I'm troubled, uh, as is uh, Jane, uh, about this. I was at a, a conference last week, and uh, one of the participants suggested 
that perhaps what we need is some sort of cap on these damages uh, and that would ensure that publications, including publications like Gawker, not go out of business when they make the wrong decision like this one. Uh, and that would be, as I understand it, there was a discussion uh, about this in the past, and, and maybe we need to do the same for uh, invasions of privacy. Um, others on the panel uh, from other countries suggested that this was the way it worked in their country, uh, that invasion of privacy, for example, would be capped at uh, a certain amount in order to uh, uh, prevent uh, the media entity from uh, from going out of business, from being hard hit by these sorts of uh, these sorts of decisions. Uh, one of the other panelists um, suggested, though, that and this was someone who had represented media uh, when uh, when she was uh, an attorney. She suggested that Gawker had just simply made the wrong call, and that she believed that no lawyer had looked at this particular. Uh, decision to public, publish the sex tape uh, because any lawyer to, would have recognized that, in fact, there were um, legal, there would be legal ramifications for doing so. Um, if that's the case, again, I think that caps might be uh, a decent way to um, to prevent this sort of thing from happening in the future. Uh, Jane, what do you think about caps? Or alternatively, uh, do you think the Supreme Court would and should strike down the privacy torts as a violation of the First Amendment? Well, as far as caps are concerned, I mean, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when there was uh, a movement about tort reform in this country to try to eliminate punitive damages in torts across the board. And in the news media context, that would have been the case as well. I've seen arguments that punitive damages against the press are fines for speaking freely, should be treated as such, and, and considered, considered unconstitutional. I I would be shocked if such a, a, an initiative made any headway in this country. I just don't think it would happen. And in some respects, I'm not even sure that it should. I am a believer in the, the, the fact that independent appellate review generally uh, deals with uh, excesses on the parts of the jury in, the, in these circumstances. With that in place, I'm less... Uh, I'm less interested in pursuing something like a cap. I'm not saying it, it wouldn't be something that would be helpful, but of course the problem with it is that it's fundamentally acknowledging that this is a reasonable cause of action and a reasonable thing to have happen. My point is that when we're talking about public figures, I don't concede that. I just am not prepared to concede that in the facts that are specific to this particular case. Again, um, I just don't see it the way people like Amy and, and many others, most people do. I'm very much in the minority on this one, and I recognize that. Um, I'm sorry, I forgot what your second question was. Uh, would the Supreme Court, and should the Supreme Court, strike down the privacy torts as a violation of the First Amendment? I don't think the current court would do that, um, and I'm not sure that a future court would, um, because the just Justices are, of course, human beings, and ultimately, I think the issue of privacy is, is a somewhat more nuanced and complex question than the reputation or even the emotional damage that can be caused by certain types of publications, which everybody could agree are part of our debate, our discourse, uh, part of our, our, our fabric. We're left with the perfectly natural and, and probably legitimate question what interest is it of anyone to see the tape of Hulk Hogan engaging in a sexual act? Um, I would agree that it's 
it's tough to make a really nuanced argument that's going to explain why that's a great matter of public interest and concern. But I think this is one of these cases that illustrates the fundamental conflict. I don't think this court is having, based on the precedent that already exists, would ever say the First Amendment and the right of privacy are incompatible. Um, I don't think that that would happen. But what I want to see is an exceedingly high bar set, um, especially when public figures are involved. Uh, Many of the examples that Amy gave earlier, and, and I agree with them, do not involve public figures. And to me, that makes a big difference. There's a huge gulf, I think, between matters that are you know, extrinsically uh, a matter of public interest and concern, and then the reality of a particular individual being involved in something like that. I mean, you know, like, I don't know, sexual assault maybe, or, or that's probably not the best example, but any number of things where you could say um, parenthood out of wedlock is a matter of great public interest and concern, but what if you're going to reveal that a 16-year-old boy has fathered a child out of wedlock? Is is that a legitimate matter of public interest and concern? There was a case like that in uh, one of the Carolinas about 30 years ago. So I guess my point just keeps going back to the, the public figure um, aspect of this particular case. And so to me, again, it, there are strong parallels. It's not an exact fit with the Falwell-Hustler case. Um, and then ultimately, of course, that led to the Snyder versus Phelps case, the, the picketing at the military funerals case, where the court went so far as to say that because it involved a matter of public interest and concern, um, the family members of the young uh, military uh, service person who had, had been killed uh, could not sue for the emotional distress that was caused uh, by the picketing of the Westboro Baptist Church at the funeral. Um, that upset a lot of people. Um, they thought that was the wrong decision. And Amy's uh, comment about the polls showing that most people would agree that this was not a legitimate thing for Gawker to do, I don't doubt that many members of the public would feel that way about it, but the role of the court is to look beyond that for the implications that that would, would flow from that. So. I may have just now talked myself into a view that would suggest that maybe the court would be prepared to go further than um, I might expect in terms of, again, at least for public figures, making clear um, where the bounds of um, the privacy tort would would logically be. And it could be that that they would have a tough time going forward um, when the First Amendment comes into play. Great. Um, Amy, how do you think this court might come down on the privacy torts? The Phelps uh, case uh, was eight to one with just Justice Alito uh, dissenting. Uh, do you imagine there'd be any votes on this court for striking down uh, the privacy torts? Well, I, I can't talk uh, specifically about this particular court, but I do think it's interesting what's happened since uh, the Snyder case, and that is that a number of courts have looked at intentional infliction of emotional distress and it's suggested that if the information that is published is targeted at a particular individual, so in other words, is not something uh, more generic phrases of public concern, but is in fact directed at an individual, that that individual, even if that individual is a public figure, should be able to bring an intentional infliction of emotional distress claim. Uh, There's a case involving Natalie Holloway's mother, for example, against the National Enquirer that suggests uh, that. Um, I also think that uh, it's possible 
that, um, and in fact likely, uh, that, that this court would in fact uh, uphold publication of private facts, a publication of private facts claim even involving uh, a celebrity in this particular case. So in other words, drawing the line uh, at graphic, at a graphic sex tape. Uh, and they suggest as much uh, in the Bartnicki case, which was decided, granted, in uh, 2001. Uh, two of the um, concurring just- justices suggested that a celebrity's sex tape would not be newsworthy. So they literally uh, write this in their concurring opinion. If you add that to the three uh, justices um, that descended in that case, that would suggest a five to four decision in favor of privacy against um, news media. Uh, and, uh, and also I think it's relevant uh, that the court granted in a number of um, criminal um, cases uh, has suggested that we all have um, intimacies uh, of life on our cell phones. Uh, and so therefore, because um, uh, these intimate photographs uh, and videos um, exist, uh, that police should get a warrant before being able to search a cell phone. And so there's at least a suggestion uh, that this court uh, would embrace privacy uh, even in uh, a, publication, a publication sense uh, with regard to um, publication of private facts, the publication of private facts towards specifically. Great. One last uh, quick question and then closing arguments. Um, Jane, in an age of social media where almost anyone can report news online, should the definition of public interest change? Should the qualifications for press change? How should the First Amendment and the Supreme Court adopt the privacy torts to the age of the Internet? I think that one of the biggest challenges is trying to figure out how to deal with this wild and crazy world where literally anyone can act as a journalist in the sense of publishing information for the general consumption of the public using new technology. Um, As we were talking about Europe uh, and other countries earlier, of course, some countries have taken the view that they need to regulate the press, that they need to license journalists. I would be very reluctant to see us go down that path, and in fact, I think the First Amendment would preclude it. Um, But Having said that, uh, there has been an assumption under uh, the First Amendment jurisprudence of the last 100 years that we were talking about news media in a traditional sense, news media that followed certain standards, practices, ethical uh, ideas, if you will. And I think a lot of the law was, was based on that. There have been exceptions, Hustler Magazine cases being a very good example of that. But um, my point is that as we're dealing with people who either don't know the rules, don't think there should be any rules, or happily flout the rules, that safety net of sort of self-imposed press responsibility, I would argue, is eroding very quickly. And that means that a lot of the fundamental foundational uh, assumptions with which the court has operated in the past are not going to be there anymore. So I am concerned about what will happen in the future with this wild, wild west that we have online and, and what the implications are going to be as whether it's you know terror groups or people that do nothing but peddle sex tapes or whatever that might be. That's going to be something that's going to cause issues for not just the Supreme Court, but certainly other courts as they move forward. I think that we can't discount uh, the impact of that in terms of what's going to happen to the law in this area. There, and my prediction would be there's going to be a lot of decisions with which I will strongly disagree that ultimately are going to have to go to the Supreme Court for resolution. It may not happen this year, but it's going to happen in the not-too-distant future. 
Great. Uh, Amy, a different version of that question to you. How do we adopt the privacy torts to the age of the Internet? And in particular, listeners know I love this question, WWBD, what would Brandeis do? On the one hand, we have this article in 1890 where he laments the idea that gossip will crowd out the space in the public sphere for matters of public discussion. On the other hand, he comes to be more interested in transparency, says sunlight is said to be the best of disinfectant, uh, electric light the most efficient policeman, and then comes to really seem to privilege uh, free speech over dignity and subsequent opinion. So how do you think Brandeis would adopt the privacy torts to the age of the Internet? Well, I, th I believe that he would be uh, horrified at the idea of uh, having a sex tape uh, published against uh, anyone's uh, wishes uh, and, in fact, would embrace the idea of publication of private facts uh, in that particular uh, limited circumstance, uh, perhaps. Uh, I agree with Jane that uh, what's happening on the Internet has uh, caused uh, turmoil uh, in courts. It used to be very clear uh, who a journalist was and uh, whether or not a decision uh, was uh, newsworthy to an extent. In other words, uh, something that uh, might be troubling um, to uh, be published, uh, yet um, important uh, or at least of interest to the public um, to read. Uh, and courts used to defer to journalists for that reason. And that's just not happening anymore because of uh, push-the-envelope um, publications uh, beyond Gawker. Um, um, for example, um, the Erin Andrews situation where uh, her uh, stalker believed that people would want to see her in the nude and so published uh, those um, tapes he had taken surreptitiously in her hotel room. Uh, it's those sorts of cases that I think make the publication of private facts toward uh, a very important one uh, and, uh, and one that courts will increasingly come to embrace. Uh, and I think that that embrace is necessary uh, to protect uh, everyone's uh, privacy uh, as long as it is cabined uh, in uh, important ways and limited to areas that have traditionally been protected uh, through the privacy torts over the years, specifically uh, nudity, sex, uh, and uh, medical information, those sorts, of, um, those sorts of things. Wonderful. Very brief closing statements, uh, if you will. Uh, and the first one is to, to you, Jane. Should the $140 million verdict in damages against Hulk Hogan be upheld or reduced, and why? I believe that it should be not upheld. I believe it should be reversed. I believe that Hulk Hogan has uh, undertaken this action against Gawker uh, for reasons that are very um, attenuated from any kind of notion of personal privacy that Warren Brandeis could have envisioned. This is a person who created a persona, um, including information about his sex life. He chose to make this part of his public image. He, in fact, in, to some extent, celebrated it. He just doesn't want to, to give up the control over it to somebody else. And in my view, that type of invasion of privacy really is much more about control than it is about the, the genuine issues of human dignity that Hogan is trying to argue affect him here. I worry when public figures and public officials try to use personal privacy as a way to censor the press. And whatever we may think about Gawker as an institution, I think anybody who believes in the First Amendment should be troubled by that. Thank you very much for that. Amy, last word to you. Should the Hulk Hogan verdict be upheld or reduced, and why? 
Well, I think it should be upheld and very likely uh, will be reduced. If it is uh, upheld, uh, I think it's uh, very easy to draw a line here and suggest that this is a graphic sex tape uh, that was published by Gawker uh, because Gawker believed that it could. Uh, and if we uphold this notion that any publisher uh, should indeed be able to publish whatever it believes is newsworthy, uh, that we're in a very troubling um, 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 time uh, when uh, a stalker uh, who uh, might decide that, uh, that it's newsworthy to see Erin Andrews uh, in the nude uh, would then publish um, her, um, her tape uh, without, um, without recourse. Uh, and so, um, and so that's why uh, I believe that it's important, also, uh, that this decision uh, is upheld on appeal. Thank you so much, Amy Guida and Jane Kirtley, for an illuminating and nuanced discussion of this fascinating and important uh, clash between uh, privacy and free speech. Uh, Jane, Amy, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Josh Weinberg and Tom Donnelly. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Constitution CTR, and on our Twitter feed, twitter.com Constitution CTR. Please subscribe to We the People on iTunes. While you're in the iTunes store, leave us a rating and review. It helps other people discover what we do. Please also subscribe to Live at America's Town Hall, featuring conversations and debates presented here at the center across from Independence Hall in beautiful Philadelphia. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out our sibling podcast at panoply.fm, including Amicus, Dahlia Lithwick's great podcast, which I just had so much fun appearing on to talk Brandeis. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. I'm repeating this every week because people think when I recite the congressional charter that we get a lot of federal support, and in fact, we get very little, and we really do rely on member support to produce these great programs. So please consider becoming a member to support our work including this podcast, and if you join at $125 or more, you will receive a signed copy of Louis D. Brandeis' American Prophet. I would love to send it to you. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.